Thanks to Tony. G'day everyone. Great to see you all. I was getting a little bit emotional earlier on, which is rare for me. Uh, and uh, I was sitting here, I was looking around, and I realised how much I love this congregation. I love you for many reasons, but in particular, I, and I think we learnt this when we were crammed in around at St James, I love the way you guys come in and sit together. You go into lots of churches and it's like a cinema. You know what I mean? Like, where, like when you go to the movies. You know when you go to the movies, you say, where is the seat where I get the best view of the screen but I'm furthest away from other human beings? That's, that's how I choose my cinema seat. Whereas you guys come in and sit together and there's whole rows here with, you know, people without gaps between them, which I love. Because it means you actually know what church is about. Church is about one another and spending time together and all that sort of thing. There's now people going, I'm sitting on my own, what's going on? But uh, I am not judging you. I am not judging you. I just wanted to share my joy with you all. But now, turn back in your Old Testament to Jeremiah 29, the second reading from before. Uh, the first reading from before, sorry. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And I'll pray as we look together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the joy it is to be a part of the fellowship of your people. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together to encourage one another and be encouraged by one another. And we pray now that you will use this piece of scripture to speak to us and to challenge us and encourage us. And in all things, we pray that you will give us a heart that's ready to listen to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the, uh, the big questions that Christians are asking themselves at the moment, certainly in Australia, is how do you live as a Christian now that the world doesn't want you to live as a Christian? Uh, I think that's a question that, that Christians are asking. And more than that, you know, how do you relate to our world? How do you relate to our society when it hates God or rejects God or just sort of thinks God is irrelevant? They, they're key questions that I think Christians are asking at the moment. And they've always been key questions. I mean, uh, Christians have asked those questions every generation. So we're nothing new. Uh, Christians have asked that question right through the last 2,000 years. But I think we're starting to feel it more keenly right now. Uh, And in particular, I think, for people of the age group that this congregation is, we're feeling it more keenly right now. Maybe, I think, because we Christians have had it too easy too long in Australia. And so we've lived in a society that wasn't Christian. Do you know, you know there, there are no less Christians now than there were 60 years ago. There's just a lot less people who go to church who aren't converted than there were 60 years ago. There's not less Christians, but our society was more Christian in the past. And so people had an attitude, a positive attitude. So even if people didn't truly follow Christ, they thought there was nothing better you could do on a Sunday morning or evening than go to church. Yeah, and the Bible is good and valuable to society. Uh, but there's been a massive shift over the last 30 years. And some of you, that's all of your life and more than all of your life. Uh, and Jesus and the church have gone from being something seen as valuable and having something worthwhile to say to say, I think 20 years ago, it moved to the fact that Jesus and the church and the Bible are irrelevant but harmless was sort of the predominant view of society. A lot of people just had this view, it's good for them as long as I don't need to be involved. But now for many people in our society, it's moved beyond that so that they've realised that the teaching of the Bible is not just to be ignored, it's to be attacked. Uh, And that's because people have worked out that the Bible actually has dangerous things to say. And people have actually worked out that the Bible is inconsistent with the dominant morality of our age. 
And so that means people now think that the Bible is evil or dangerous because the dominant morality of our age is tolerance is everything and the most important right you have is the freedom to do whatever you want. Whereas the Bible says, no, 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 far more important than that is individual responsibility and a self-sacrificial love for others. And so there's this collision between the Bible and Christian ideas and values and with our world. And so as, society, as our societies move further and further from its sort of Christian underpinnings, it just seems much harder to live as a Christian now than it did when I became a Christian 20-something years ago. Uh, now, in many ways, Christians in other parts of the world just sort of laugh at us and just sort of say, what's your problem? Try being a Christian in Iran or Somalia or Saudi Arabia. But even so, the change in our, in our society is making us ask those questions. How do we relate to our world, to our society, when it hates God or rejects God or just thinks God is irrelevant? Well, this chapter in Jeremiah helps us with these questions. Uh, because what it does is it gives us an answer to those questions that God gave his people at another point in history. The thing we've got to do with this chapter is we've then got to work out how we are the same as them and different to them before we work out what it says to us to answer those questions. So let's get into it. So open up your Bibles. We're in a little section from chapter 27 to chapter 29. Now by this point, so for the first 25 or 26 chapters of Jeremiah, the dominant message Jeremiah has been preaching is repent because God's judgment is coming from the north. Well now by this point, God's judgment has come from the north. So you know by this point, everything Jeremiah has been warning them about has come true. The Babylonians have come and they've taken Jerusalem and they've taken King Jehoiachin and many of the noble people and all the, the wealthy and educated people. They have been taken off into exile in Babylon and, and there's sort of like a remnant left in Jerusalem where Jeremiah is. So you remember how Jeremiah has been prophesying time and time again. Judgment is coming from the north. But all through that time, what had other people said? No, it's not. And so this was Jeremiah's constant battle. Here he was prophesying and giving them an unpopular word. And other people said, but we're prophets and we're telling you it won't happen. And so they kept saying to Jeremiah, don't be stupid, Jeremiah. We're God's people. God's not going to judge us. Don't be stupid, Jeremiah. We've got the temple. As if God will let anything happen to his temple. Now it's happened. Now Jeremiah's prophecies have come true and they've been decimated. So you would think they'd be ready to believe Jeremiah now. You would think that. Let's see what actually happens. Because now, come to chapter 27, now God gives Jeremiah a new word for these new times. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, is going to rule over you for 70 years. And so God's message to you is, don't oppose him don't challenge him if you know what's good for you just accept that God has put the Babylonians in charge and then wait for God to do something about it in 70 years time effectively Jeremiah's word now was accept that this is God's will for you and so Jeremiah goes and he shares that with the new king but he does it in a particularly powerful way uh, Jeremiah marches into the court with a yoke bar across that's not like a Mars bar like 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 the thing they put on ox, an ox, you know, to keep it going straight, a big bit of wood across around his neck and with his hands in it like this, he walks in there with this massive block of timber there around him and he says, this is God's will for us, 
Now, we are the slaves, the cattle of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. This is part of God's judgment on us for the way we've ignored him. But of course, the false prophets then stand up and say, that's not true. Jeremiah's just being overdramatic again. You know, we are God's people. God is with us. False prophets have this incredible ability to ignore everything that's happening in the real world. And one guy, Hananiah, he makes a big point of coming over and smashing the wooden bar off Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is sort of free and liberated. He says, that is what God is going to do to Nebuchadnezzar. God is going to liberate us. He's going to judge Nebuchadnezzar. And in two years, God will show him who's boss. And they're going to let King Jehoiachin come back with all the others. And they'll bring back all the things they've taken from our temple. And everything will be wonderful again. And it'll all be great. Now, Jeremiah knew that that was disastrous for them. If they listened to that sort of teaching, if they acted on that basis, what was going to happen was the Babylonians would wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what would happen. But of course, who did they listen to? They listen to the prophet who tells them what they want to hear. And that's our first lesson from this part of scripture. I've got three lessons if you look on your outline there and that's the first one. Be careful who you listen to. In every age, there are false prophets and false teachers. And often they sound great because what they do is they tell us there is an easier way. There's a way that means there's no pain, there's no suffering. Or they say, there's a triumphant way. Things are going to be better for you if you listen to my teaching. They tell us what we want to hear. And so Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, this is in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 4, look on your outline. Paul tells us, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. If you ever doubt that God's word comes true, just get on the internet and you'll see the fulfillment of 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3. And you see it in the modern church. You can shop around and find a preacher who claims to be teaching God's word who will tell you what you want to hear if that's what you want to do if you don't like what I say you can just go down the road you can just find another church and you'll find a preacher there who will tell you a toned down version and there are plenty of Hananiahs around right now at the moment in Sydney telling Christians that the God's ideas on morality need to change as societies change God's ideas on sexuality need to change God's ideas on gender need to change because we have to fit in with the modern world and there are plenty of Hananiahs around who will tell you that you can be a Christian and live however you want and you can be a Christian and follow the world at the same time that's why you need to test everything including what I say against what against the scriptures That's why you have to test everything against the scriptures. That's why you should be looking down right now at the Bible in your lap, not just trusting me. How do you know I'm not a Hananiah? Do you know, that is why I like it when sometimes you don't like what I say. I have two things I like people to say to me after I've preached a sermon. One I like more than the other. And there's one I really hate you saying. Do you want to hear the one I hate you saying, first of all? Oh, that was a really good sermon. Thank you. That's like my pet hate. What I really like is that was a really good sermon because it encouraged me in this way or I now understand God's word better or it challenged me in this way. 
but I would rather than the first one you to come and say I'm angry at what you said about that or that upset me because here's the thing if you always agree with everything I say there is something wrong or or more specifically if if you are never made to question or made to think oh I don't know if I like that 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 upsets me a bit then you don't go away and grapple with it and grapple with God's word then there is something wrong you're not thinking hard enough You see, if you always find you agree with the preacher and he just affirms what you think and he never makes you squirm and he never makes you feel a bit uncomfortable, then chances are he's a Hananiah, not a Jeremiah. And he's leading you away from God. Can I tell you my great temptation, or actually the great temptation for any preacher, and is just like it was for Jeremiah all those thousands of years ago, the great temptation is to want people to like you. To want people to like you. Because if you want people to like you, then you will not proclaim the truth of God's word. You just won't do it. You'll pull the punches. You'll tone it down. If you want people to like you, then you cannot proclaim the truth without fear or favour. But then the other side of that coin, for all of God's people, the great temptation for every Christian is to look for teachers and preachers who just affirm us rather than challenge us. And I hope you're seeing that warning in Jeremiah. Back now to Jeremiah 29. Come with me to chapter 29 because this false prophecy that the exile would only last two years and then Nebuchadnezzar would be defeated. That news had got to the exiles living in Babylon as well. And so for the exiles, if that was from the message from God, you know, you'll be home in two years. What do you think they might do in response? You see, they'd say, well, there's no use of settling down here in Babylon we'll just sit on the river and wait for God to redeem us you know we'll just sit on the banks we won't make a life for ourselves here in Babylon because we won't be here long enough we'll wait till we get back to Jerusalem before we get married and before we do all those other things or worse still Jeremiah's fear was they'd say well that's great if we're going to win anyway let's fight it let's fight the Babylonians let's take on King Nebuchadnezzar because our victory is assured in two years time and that would have been disastrous for them So they need to be told, don't believe this false rubbish that the false prophets are telling you. You actually have 70 years in Babylon before God will bring you back to the promised land. And so chapter 29 is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles to refute this false teaching. That's what it is. And the main point Jeremiah wanted to make to God's people in exile, it's the second point there on your outline. The big promise of this chapter, if you like, is this. God is in control just because bad stuff is happening doesn't mean God isn't in control anymore God is in control and God is working for your long-term good but God will do it in his time not according to your timetable and it's here in verses 10 to 14 which is the key verses of the chapter so look from verse 10 and I'm going to read them out sort of in total it says for this is what the Lord says when 70 years for Babylon are complete I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, that is to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. 
hope you can see what great verses they are God is saying to them here is why I've put you in Babylon Nebuchadnezzar hasn't put you in Babylon I've put you in Babylon and the reason is is I have done it to drive you to turn back to me ironically I've got to take you away from the temple for you to understand that you should pray to me and that you should turn back to me and you should repent and so God says even though I've judged you now I will keep my promises to you and in fact if we read on for the rest of the chapter he tells them in fact they are the hope for the future of God's people you see they thought they were the unlucky ones the other guys are back in Jerusalem but God says no 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 I'm going to wipe them out they are going to get wiped out they won't be there when you get back you guys are the ones I'm going to fulfill my promises in so here in these verses is the great hope for the fulfillment of God's promises to his people but God says to them it's not going to be quick it's not two years like the false prophets are saying and there's something there about false teaching often false teaching is right but it gets the timing wrong you see so much of modern false teaching says God wants to bless you and God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and and have everything you want which is the promise of scripture for the new creation when Jesus returns but the false teacher says have it now God promises it to you now but here God says it will be 70 years before God will answer your prayers and he will restore you to your true home God still has a plan for their welfare for their good for their salvation but it will happen in his time not in theirs now come with me back to verse 11 look at verse 11 because verse 11 of Jeremiah 29 is probably up there for the most misused bible passage in all scripture by Christians and if you read chapter chapter 29 verse 11 it will remind you of something except you probably know the NIV or the King James rather than the Holman but as you read verse 11 you'll remember it because it's on your auntie's wall on a tapestry or it's on a thing with a sunset behind it at Kurong bookstore you, you, you know it you, you will know chapter 29 verse 11 and you can see why it's a great verse but you need to get this it is not a personal promise of God to you which is how it often gets used and so if I had a dollar for every time I'd seen Christians misuse this verse then the prosperity gospel would be true I would be incredibly rich <laughs> this is not a promise that your business will go well and, and that God has a plan for you and that your family will be wonderful I see Christians quote this verse like that all the time it's like a, a magic verse or something but no what is it saying to us as New Testament believers see what it actually is is a promise saying God is in control and he will fulfill his promises to you but not whatever promise you come up with he will fulfill the promises to you that he has made in his word and God does not promise us success and wealth and constant happiness in this life but he does promise us that if we trust in Jesus our salvation is assured and he does promise us that one day Jesus will return and then we'll be with him forever free from pain and suffering and the consequences of sin and he promises us that whatever happens good or bad in this life he is in control and he is working for our eternal good see the Jeremiah 29 11 for us is Romans 8 28 look on your outline Romans 8 28 says we know that is people who know Jesus we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose 
See, if you're someone who loves Jesus, then whatever happens, God is working for your good. It's not a promise that whatever happens will be good and that you'll be happy about it. It's a promise that whatever happens, positive or the most awfully negative things, whatever happens, God is working for your eternal good. And that's why for 2,000 years, Christians have been happy to go through awful things when society doesn't like Christians, go through awful things, but keep trusting in Jesus. Because even if you go to jail for your faith, you know God has a place for me in his eternal kingdom. What do I care? And that's why the reformers, we've been talking about all year, did anyone give away a Bible at Halloween instead of a lolly? Anyone? Anyone? No? Anyway. See, the reformers, so many of them got burnt at the stake. They got their heads cut off. And yet they were happy to do it. And they went singing hymns into it. And why were they willing to do that? Because they said, even if you put me to death, God is working for my eternal good. And so when things are going bad in life, this is not a promise that God will work it out for you. That's another false teaching that gets peddled all too often. And the promise of God to us is much more subtle, but much more wonderful. And that is, even if everything goes wrong in this life, God is faithful. And God will hold you in his hand and ensure that you remain in him and he remains in you. And just like the pain of the exile is going to drive them back to God, that was the whole purpose of it, to drive them back to God. In the same way, the New Testament tells us God uses our struggles and the bad things in life. He even uses the consequence of our own sinful decisions to grow us in Christian maturity. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 3, the other page of your outline. It says this, it says not only that but we also rejoice in our afflictions. How on earth can you rejoice in your afflictions? Well Paul tells us how, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. So just like the exile was going to turn them back to God to pray to him and ask for his forgiveness. That is what our struggles and our afflictions do for us in our life. But only if we understand them through the lens of God's word and not through the eyes of our world. Afflictions in the eyes of our world mean get angry at God and say, why is God doing this to me? Whereas when we understand them through the lens of God's word, they drive us to grow in endurance and perseverance and hope. Back now to Jeremiah 29, the third and final point. And that is that we need to live in the light of God's promises. And this is where I come to answering those questions I started with. Uh, Because knowing what God had actually promised them, that they wouldn't be returning to Jerusalem in two years' time, but instead it would be 70 years, that then shaped how they should live in Babylon. So look back now to verses 4 to 7. Again, I'm going to read them out in total. So look, verses 4 to 7. It says, This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Now, we have to understand just how radical what he just said to them was for them to hear. See, put yourself in their shoes. For them, Jerusalem is God's city. It's their home. Babylon is evil. Babylon is hell on earth 
for them. So they expected God to say, now you're in Babylon, fight it or destroy it, or at the very least, withdraw from it into a Jewish ghetto and just sort of stay away from the Babylonians. But no, God says, live there in Babylon and get married and expand, seek the good of that city. Now, why did God give them that command? Is it because God loved the Babylonians? No. He says, because that way you will prosper. And in particular, that way, when I come and save you in 70 years, there'll be a people worth saving. And when you then get back to Jerusalem, there'll be enough of you to actually rebuild the temple. And there'll be enough of you to rebuild the city. And you'll actually be the people I want you to be. See, this was God saying to them, I have not given up on you. Yes, you're in exile as part of my judgment, but I am still going to keep my promises to you. So now live for the future. Don't get yourselves wiped out there in Babylon. Get strong, build yourself up, have lots of kids. Because in 70 years time, I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem and you're going to have to rebuild my city and rebuild my temple. So God says, what I want you to do is actually help the evil city of Babylon to prosper so that my people can grow and prosper and be ready for the fulfillment of my promises in 70 years time. Now it's sad, but that command in verse 7 is tied with the one in verse 11 for the currently most misused Bible verse in the Christian world. And I won't go into it now, but I gave a talk at a conference a couple of years ago on this passage about how it gets misused and how we should understand it. If you want a copy of that, someone actually sent me a text during the week and said, Phil, I found an article you might find helpful preparing a talk on Jeremiah 29. And they sent me another text and said, oh, I just found out you wrote it. Um, uh, So anyway, uh, if you'd like a copy of that, uh, you can write that on your feedback slip and I'll send it to you or put it out in the Facebook group or something like that. But very quickly, people grab this verse and they say, this is how you need to live as a Christian. This is all you need to know to live as a Christian. Seek the welfare of the city you are in. That's how it gets used. And they then argue that therefore your job as a Christian, your primary job is to help our city to prosper so then we can prosper as Christians. How does that make sense of the fact that in a few chapters time, God is going to talk about how he's going to wipe out Babylon? How does that make sense of the Psalms where they rejoice in the destruction of Babylon? Which word are we meant to take and apply to ourselves? The one about seeking the good of our city or the one about wiping our city out? You see, it is a dangerous business grabbing parts of the old testament out of context and then applying them straight to us that's why you need to do an intro to the bible by the way see it's very dangerous this is not a timeless word of instruction god's calling on you is not to seek the good of your city no no what this is is a timeless principle and the principle is live in the light of god's promises to you in scripture that's the principle so for us Our hope is not that God would make Sydney prosperous so we can prosper. That's the prosperity gospel and it's a false teaching. That is not what God calls you to work towards. Our hope is, at least I hope it's your hope, our hope is that we and other people in our city would get to be a part of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, when Sydney, like Babylon before it, is wiped away. See, that is our hope. Jesus says to us, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. He doesn't then say, but store a few up in earth. He says, no, no, store up treasures in heaven, 
not on earth. See, but then we need to ask, well, what does God's word say to us then about how we should live while we're here in our Babylon? And I want to make three points. You'll see them there at the end of your outline. The first to make is that this chapter is relevant to us because we, like them, are living in exile. We just read 1 Peter 2 as our second reading before, which said we are strangers and aliens in this world. That is what you are if you're a Christian. You're not meant to feel at home here. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're not meant to say, I love living in Sydney. You're meant to say, I look forward to living in heaven, not here on earth. And in a sense, like them, we are living in Babylon, waiting for the new Jerusalem. But unlike them, and this is where we're different, we have always lived in Babylon. Have any of you had an experience of heaven yet? I don't think you have. If you have, I'd like to talk to you about it and maybe get you some help. But (laughs) you haven't. We were converted in Babylon. We feel very much at home in Babylon. You see, unlike them, we have not had an experience of Jerusalem or of heaven to pine for. We don't need any encouragement to build houses here on earth. We don't need any encouragement to get more wealthy here on earth. We're we're pretty naturally attuned to doing that. Now, you see, that's why Jesus says, store your treasures in heaven, not on earth. Because he knows that's where we naturally store our treasures. No Christian has ever needed an encouragement to work at getting more wealthy or to work at having more houses or to to work at finding someone to get married to and have children. We don't need any encouragement for that. Jesus says, no, no, you have far greater need to be encouraged to remember that this is not your real home and store up your treasures where it really matters. Second point I want to make is, We have not had a specific word on how long our exile will last. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that one of the signs of a false teacher is, they say, I can tell you when Jesus is coming back. That's when you go, false teacher, don't listen to them. He says, no one knows the time or date. So the call to the Jews back in that moment was in the light of the fact that God had given them a very specific timetable, 70 years, then I'm taking you back. We don't have that certainty. We have the encouragement of the New Testament to see that the days are short. We are to stand ready for Christ's return at any moment. The New Testament says to us, don't be found sleeping. Don't be surprised if Jesus returns tonight. In fact, 2 Peter tells us the only reason for delay is so that more people can hear about Jesus and so not perish. And so the New Testament then gives us the answer for how we are to relate to our world. It says, live for heaven. That's what the New Testament says. Store up your treasure there. Seek to win people for Christ. That is your primary calling as Christians. But then the New Testament says, but hang on, some Christians will then say, oh, well, I'll withdraw from the world. I won't have anything to do with it. And I'll stop working and I'll just wait for Jesus to come back. So the New Testament says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't let that make you withdraw from the world. You need to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's why we read 1 Peter 2 before. Because 1 Peter 2 is the New Testament's Jeremiah 29. So look at with me, a couple of verses on your outline right at the end there. Chapter 2 verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. That's the don't be in the world bit. Be separate, be different, live differently. But then in verse 12, what does he say? He says, Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles 
So that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. See, that's our answer to our question. How are we to relate to our world? Well, that's what you're meant to do. Let our be different while you're in the world. Don't withdraw from the world into a Christian ghetto, but instead live such good lives amongst the non-Christian world that even if they accuse you of doing evil, or even worse, accuse you of being intolerant or bigoted, even if they accuse you of that, it's not true. And eventually they might just say, what is it about them that's different? And I want to know the Jesus who they worship. See, that is our marching orders. Let our difference point people to Jesus. And sometimes they won't like you, but Jesus says, don't withdraw, instead overcome evil with good. Don't hate your enemy, but feed him instead. Don't withdraw into a Christian ghetto, but love your neighbour in the wider sense of that word. Don't fight with the authorities, but pray for them and submit to them as far as you can while still submitting to Christ. Be in the world but live such a righteous life that even if they accuse you of evil, your righteousness shines through. That is our marching orders for living as aliens and strangers in this fallen world. But more than anything, if we let our understanding of God's promises drive us, more than anything we will see that the most fundamental thing we can do for the welfare of our fallen world, if you want to seek the good of your city, the most important thing you can do is share the reason for your hope share the reason for your hope and offer other sinners like us the salvation we have found in Christ Jesus if you want to love your city that's the most important thing you can do that is God's word for us today let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for the warnings of scripture and in particular the warning about false prophets and we pray that we would test everything we hear against your scriptures And help us not to look for people who tell us what our itching ears want to hear. But instead, help us to look for people who challenge us with the truth of God's word. And Father, we thank you for the promise we've been reminded of that you are in control and you keep your promises to us. And so, Father, we thank you that you are working for our eternal good. Even if sometimes in this life we go through struggles and pain and affliction, we thank you for that promise that you will hold us to the end and have a place for us in your kingdom. And finally, Father, we pray that we will live in the light of your promises. Help us not to withdraw from the world, but instead help us to live such godly lives that other people will look at us and want to know the reason why we live like we do. And so give us the opportunity to point people to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.